Welcome to Madison Labor Radio. Labor Radio is dedicated to bringing news, information, and cultural events focused on working people and the labor movement to the Madison area and surrounding communities. I am David Delier. Thank you to all our listeners. Your support helps us make Labor Radio and all the great programming on WORT possible. Hi, I'm Annette Kuhlmann. Today we report on new contract settlements, OPEIU Local 39 negotiations with Madison Gas and Electric, the challenges faced by the Teaching Assistance Association, Labor Fest 23, and much more. And if you like what you hear, please consider becoming a sustaining supporter of WRT and Labor Radio. At the approach of Labor Day, two Madison unions report contract settlements. The Carpenters Union, Local 314, report they have an agreement with area contractors. According to the local's website, there is a total increase of $8.55 over the three-year life of the agreement. Meanwhile, at the IBW, members of IBW Local 2304, representing blue-collar workers at Madison Gas and Electric, have ratified their contract. 91% of the members participated in the ratification vote, and 88% voted for the new settlement. According to the union, this five-year contract comes with a 5% increase in the base in year one, with additional increases for each of the years thereafter. According to them, they also made significant steps in improving vacation, among other improvements. There is inflation protection written into the contract. Meanwhile, Madison Gas and Electric continues to resist reaching an acceptable contract with salary workers represented by OPEIU Local 39. Full disclosure, members of the WRIT staff collective are members of Local 2304. I am Frank Emsbach from Madison Labor Radio. Madison Gas and Electric Workers are represented by two unions, IBEW 2304 and OPEIU 39. The IBEW was able to reach a tentative agreement recently with management as MGNE, but that the membership accepted. The OPEIU is still in negotiations for their members. My name is Kelsey Hahn. I am the chief steward of OPEIU at Madison Gas and Electric. What's going on with negotiations right now with MGNE? We are headed into our fifth month of negotiations right now. It's been a lot of back and forth and a lot of the company making presentations to us about why we're wrong rather than actually giving us a useful counter. We have been negotiating at the same time as IBW 2304. Why are the workers at MG&E represented by two different unions? IBW represents the field staff at MG&E. OPIU represent the office staff and a handful of field adjacent, which is actually in the area I'm in. We represent the call center. That's our biggest area. We also cover customer billing, some operations type roles, GIS and mapping. We cover accounting, office services, meter reading. So we have kind of a grab bag of different areas. But I would say the call center makes up close to a quarter, maybe a bit more of our members. 
What does the call center do? Anytime you call into MG&E with a question about your bill, with a gas leak, with any number of issues, they're the face of MG&E. It's actually a pretty high stress role. Any call could turn into an emergency. So they're handling that emergency work. They're handling if your power goes out at 10 p.m. on a Friday night, they're who are getting called in to work the phones and to take those outage reports. They really cover a whole range of different things. And right now their pay is about what you could make going to get a job at Target. So shockingly, they're having a hard time with retention and recruitment. I believe most of the other utilities in the state don't have the split union model. If their customer service staff are represented, they're still covered under IBEW or IUOE or whatever the union happens to be there. I've talked to staff at some of those unions and they do sometimes feel like they get short shrift because the field guys have all of these big concerns and they make more money and you feel like there's office specific concerns that sometimes fall down the priority list. And so by it being our own unit, we are able to focus on those concerns, but we do still have to be careful to coordinate with IBEW because of course the flip side is that they use you against each other if you let them. IBEW reached a tentative agreement with the company last Monday. The tentative agreement that IBEW has reached, that's the floor, right? We're not going to accept the company giving us less than that when IBEW staff, many of them make twice what most of my members make. If the company is willing to do that for them, we're certainly not willing to accept less. We do have some concerns around healthcare costs and how that relates to our wages that we are trying to hold strong on because it impacts us more when you look at what our members make. The company sat there, not last week, but the week before last, and sat us through this PowerPoint presentation where they went, oh, well, your members' healthcare premiums don't qualify them for federal subsidies under the ACA. So we think we're doing pretty well. And I went, that's the bar? That's where you're setting the bar is federal aid? Is that where you're setting the bar for your salaried staff? Is that where you're setting the bar for your managers that your healthcare costs aren't under the bar for federal aid? No, you're only talking about that with us. So it's just been really frustrating and really insulting at times to have them approach us like, oh, well, maybe you didn't understand why we're right and you're wrong. I think that the office work gets devalued a bit by the company because it's less visible. And I think it's easy for the company to see it as very rote and routine. But it's what keeps everything moving smoothly. It's what brings revenue in. MG&E talks a lot about being your community energy company and being proud of the level of the service they provide. Well, that's us. That was Kelsey Hahn, Chief Steward for OPEIU at Madison Gas and Electric. This is Janine Ramsey reporting for Labor Radio. The UW semester starts this week, and the Teaching Assistance Association is facing the challenge to organize the thousands of graduate students. 
Frank M. Speck has the story. Well, the TAA is the first graduate teaching assistance union to be recognized and the chief collector of bargaining status in the United States. Do you have bargaining rights now? So, no, we don't engage in collective bargaining with the university. You do not engage in collective bargaining with the university. Correct. President Dean described why the TAA does not choose to engage in collective bargaining with the university. Act 10 has made it really difficult for us to recertify as a labor union. Um, and so instead, we've taken an organizing-based approach, and we've been doing a lot of organizing on the department level and trying to win things that way, as well as doing some bigger pushes in organizing around issues like paid family leave, seg fees and international student fees and trying to gain the attention of the administration that way instead. Has the TAA been successful with that approach? We have been successful on the small scale um, in doing some department level organizing. There are some specific smaller departments who will cover these fees for students. Unfortunately, this push hasn't been successful on the university wide scale yet, but it's something that we are still pushing against in the university. And we hope to push more departments in the future to follow in in the footsteps of those that have started covering these fees. What is the greatest challenge to the TAA? faces? I think one of the hardest um, things that we face is just letting people know about the union and getting people active and engaged. There are so many graduate students at UW-Madison. We represent almost 10,000 people somewhere around there. And so it's really tough to let everyone know about the union, let everyone know about what we do, and really get people excited and engaged in the union on such a big scale. So we represent anyone who's considered a graduate level student at the university. So regardless of what appointment type you might have, we do represent you. What can the TAA do to go on the offensive and unite students, academic staff, and faculty with a vision for the university? As I've mentioned a little bit, we've done a lot of organizing on the department level. Um, I'm a cell and molecular biologist. That's my program. And so I've worked within my program to let people know about the union and to push our specific program to um, adopt a number of different things. And what we've successfully won so far is is they've established an emergency fund for students to help cover some fees. We've gotten some increased transparency and uh, increased representation on um, the committee that decides our wages. And so we've we've gotten other departments to do really similar things. And win these kind of smaller things on a department scale. And what we do is we have stewards in each of these departments that act as kind of point people for those departments, let the TAA know about the specific concerns and challenges that graduate students in those departments are facing so that we can come together as a whole in the TAA and understand what are the needs and priorities for graduate students across campus. And we're trying to build and uh, have more representation across a number of different departments over this past this past week and the next few weeks we're presenting at over 25 different department orientations to try to spread the word uh, about the union all across campus so by building these kind of smaller communities within departments we're trying to get stronger um, as a whole and push for some of these larger issues that I've mentioned including segregated fees international student fees and also just getting getting raises overall for students uh, we recently 
recently got a, a raise that raised the minimum pay rate for graduate students, but we'd like to push the administration even further um, in the face of rising inflation and a lot of um, challenges that students are facing with finding housing right now as well. That was Nina Dean, co-president of the Teaching Assistance Association, describing the challenges and vision of the teaching assistants as they approach this new semester. I am Frank Emsbach from Madison Labor Radio. Workers spoke out at a hospital in Appleton this week. Greg Gabowski has more. The Department of Labor announced on Wednesday a notice of proposed rulemaking that would restore and extend overtime protections to 3.6 million salaried workers. The proposed rule would guarantee overtime pay for most salaried workers earning less than $1,059 a week, about $55,000 a year. Acting Secretary Julie Su said, quote, for over 80 years, a cornerstone of workers' rights in this country is the right to a 40-hour work week. The promise that you get to go home after 40 hours or you get higher pay for each extra hour that you spend laboring away from your loved ones, unquote. The proposed rule change follows months of extensive outreach to employers, workers, unions, and other stakeholders which included the department holding 27 listening sessions with more than 2,000 participants to inform the proposed rule. Here are some of the changes. 1. Restore and extend overtime protections to low-paid salary workers. 2. Give workers who are not exempt executive, administrator, or professional employees valuable time back. And 3 prevent a future erosion of overtime protections and ensure greater predictability. The rule proposes automatically updating the salary threshold every three years to reflect current earnings data. Upon publication in the Federal Register, the notice of proposed rulemaking will be open for the public comment for 60 days. Reporting for Labor Radio, this is Carol Weidel. Workers spoke out at the hospital in Appleton this week. Greg Gabowski has more. On Tuesday at noon, workers and representatives of SEIU Wisconsin gathered at ThetaCare Regional Medical Center in Appleton. Service and support workers of the hospital, represented by SEIU Wisconsin, are demanding higher wages and increased staffing. This is currently the only unit represented by a union at ThetaCare's seven facilities in the state. According to the union, sterile processing technicians who clean surgical instruments make less than $18 an hour. Certified nursing assistants and housekeeping at ThetaCare starts at $14.22 an hour, and some low paid workers receive less in annual pay than ThetaCare executives received in bonuses. Pat Race, the president of SEIU Wisconsin and a nurse at Madison's Unity Point Meritor Hospital, had this to say. We are a strong statewide union, stronger than ever, representing over 7,000 workers across this great state of Wisconsin. Not just nurses and CNAs anymore, but security, food service, engineers, electricians, center supply, and housekeeping workers. We are the essential workers that got us through the pandemic. And now we continue to fight for respect, patient safety, and a wage that allows our workers to thrive. Race was clear about what she sees as the cause of low staffing at ThetaCare. Right now, we are seeing low pay leading to understaffing and the remaining staff struggling to keep up with the care of the facility. This is caused by ThetaCare not paying enough to keep quality employees. Mark Heinrich, a cook at the hospital, described the three jobs he has to cover due to short staffing. ThetaCare 
eliminated in a position. Now they're bringing it back because of doing three different jobs besides my original. I now have to get to state and help and cook on the line at night because uh, to fill that position, it was eliminated. I'm doing three different jobs right now, making a salad bar, prepping the childcare, preparing food for tray line, and then having to cook in the evenings then for tray line, the hot and cold production. Heinrich said that the staffing issues continue, despite economies made in the hospital, such as cutting back on fresh food for patients, and that he and others often find it necessary to work during unpaid state-mandated 15-minute breaks to cover needed jobs. As with race, Heinrich ties the staffing difficulties directly to low pay. It's obvious to me that ThetaCare is not giving out raises is directly affecting our ability to retain staff and provide our patients with the quality of care that they deserve. We demand that ThetaCare invest in us as essential workers. That was Mark Heinrich, a cook at ThetaCare Regional Medical Center in Appleton, speaking Tuesday. The union pointed out that ThetaCare has tried creative ways to keep its facility staffed. When employees at its Nina facility went to get higher paying jobs at another hospital, ThetaCare sued them to keep them from leaving. Although in January 2022, a judge ruled that these at-will workers could go free, Thetacare's attempt at reinstituting indentured servitude briefly caught the attention of the national press. In response to Tuesday's union action, Thetacare released a statement to the media that read, in part, quote, As a not-for-profit health system, Thetacare's mission is to improve the health and well-being of the communities we serve. For Labor Radio, I'm Greg Jaboski. Statistic of the week, the effects of the Raise the Wage Act on workers in our congressional district. The congressional district of Wisconsin covers Dane County, Iowa County, Lafayette, Sauk, and Greene counties, as well as portions of Richland County and Rock. The Raise the Wage Act of 2023 will have a significant impact on our district. The federal minimum wage is $7.25 an hour and has remained fixed at this rate for 14 years. Over this period of time, due to inflation, the real value of the wage has decreased by 30%. The Raise the Wage Act of 2023 would raise the federal minimum to $17 per hour by 2028. The bill would also gradually raise and then eliminate the sub-minimum wage for tip workers, workers with disabilities, and youth workers so that all workers covered by the Fair Labor Standards Act would have the same basic wage. While it is true that wages have risen in our area since COVID, 
a large number of workers would still benefit from this increase. There are about 374,000 workers covered by the Fair Labor Standards Act in the 2nd Congressional District. Of those, 70,000 would be affected by the increase, or about 18% of the workforce. The total upward value of the wage change by 2028 would be $240 million. The average annual wage increase of affected workers would be about $3,422. Thanks to the Economic Policy Institute for the information in this Statistic of the Week. I am Frank Emsbach from Madison Labor Radio. Monday is Labor Day. Carol Weidel has a story. Support for labor unions is on the upswing. There are new resources for workers at the Department of Labor website, including the History of Labor Day. Labor Day is a day for honoring America's workers and celebrating their contributions to everything we cherish about our country. The holiday is rooted in the vibrant labor movement of the late 19th century, when labor activists pushed for a federal holiday to recognize how ordinary workers from coast to coast built America's strength, prosperity, and well-being. In the beginning, labor activists called for wider recognition, parades, picnics, and speeches. The first recorded celebration of this kind took place on September 5, 1882, in New York City. The Central Labor Union organized a day of street parades, picnics, and parties to exhibit the strength and camaraderie of the trade and labor organizations in the community. Congress acted to make Labor Day a federal holiday to be celebrated the first Monday in September. And on June 28, 1894, President Grover Cleveland signed the bill into law. Though the law only made Labor Day an official holiday for federal workers, over time, the holiday spread to all 50 states, the District of Columbia, and U.S. territories. And it now applies to all state and local government employees. Private employers generally recognize the day as a holiday, too. Working people are the backbone of our country to keep our economy moving. In Madison, the community can celebrate Monday at the Labor Temple on South Park Street. There will be food and the bands performing are the Periodicals and VO5. The community can bring $25 gift cards from local businesses for homeless students in the transition program or personal items. Anne McNeary explained how the day will unfold. Kids' events are back. Um, they did stop those during um, the peak COVID times, but those are back. So if people want to bring kids, there will be stuff for them to do also. Certainly enjoying the bands, and, and that is, is fine, but to have those back is a, a good thing. I believe there'll be face painting and um, balloons, stuff like that. And certainly all are welcome to join us. And certainly invite everybody to attend Labor Fest 23. Reporting for Labor Radio, this is Carol Weidel. It has been 60 years since the historic March for Jobs and Freedom, which brought 250,000 people to Washington, D.C. What have been the results? Frank M. Speck has the reports. The 1963 March on Washington was a march for both jobs and freedom. Organizers of the march understood that without an economic base, freedom would be an illusion. The Economic Policy Institute has produced a new report, Chasing the Dream of Equity. Key findings of the report are, post-civil rights era legislation 
has largely failed to address widening racial disparities in wages, wealth, and home ownership for black Americans. During the past 50 years, the annual black unemployment rate has often exceeded 10%, while even during the worst economic downturns, the annual white unemployment rate has never exceeded 10%. The typical white family has eight times as much wealth as a typical black family. This racial gap is long-standing vestige of centuries of government policies that explicitly denied African Americans the opportunity to build wealth. More specifically, the 1963 marchers called upon the federal government to establish a National Minimum Wage Act that would give all Americans a decent standard of living, and to enact comprehensive and effective civil rights legislation to guarantee the right to vote, decent housing, adequate and integrated education, and equal access to all accommodations. In addition, 1963 marchers asked the federal government to develop a broadened, more inclusive Fair Labor Standards Act that would include all workers, all areas of employment that were presently excluded, and finally, to enact and fund a massive federal program to train and place unemployed workers. Overall, the Economic Policy Institute's report shows that these demands have not been fulfilled in many cases at all or only partially. The full report, Chasing the Dream of Equity, can be accessed via the Economic Policy Institute's website at epi.org. I am Frank Emsbach from Madison Labor Radio. Thanks for listening to Madison Labor Radio. I'm Annette Kuhlmann. Thanks to editor Frank Amsbeck, assistant Robin G., reporters Greg Gabowski, Janine Ramsey, Carol Weidel, and damage control specialist Joanne Powers. Special thanks to Keith Steffen, our reader coordinator, web poster Andrew Lee, and to all our readers and the members of the IBEW Local 2304 WORT Staff Collective. And I'm David Delier. We also like to thank all of the generous contributors to Labor Radio and WORT. Please stay tuned for the Blues Cruise with Dave Watts and the Professor Bill Clark.